My guest today coined the phrase, the curse of the inheritance. It's an ugly monster of jealousy, fear, and selfishness that crushes families, eats money, and destroys lives. The curse of inheritance is born in an environment of loss and grief by unprepared heirs who feel entitled to unearned wealth and forget to see each other as human beings. On this episode of Executor Help Podcast, the top three reasons families don't survive an inheritance. Welcome to the Executor Help Podcast, a show dedicated to help you settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, visit davided.com. Now here's your host, David E.D. With me today is Cindy Ardlett. She's an industry thought leader, author of, get this, um, four Amazon best-selling books. She has first-hand experience with wealth loss after her parents passed away eight months apart. Now, today she's made it her mission to help families create a family harmony plan to resolve conflict, build trust and communication, and more importantly, have more fun together. Cindy, I want to thank you for being here on the Executor Help podcast, and uh, maybe you want to share with us and tell us some stories of, you know, why, how come families don't survive an inheritance? David, thank you for having me here on the podcast. And I'd also like to give a plug to your book. It you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And after reading your book, you actually helped me tell my brother no to being his backup executor. So uh, if you haven't read David's book, I'm just going to tell you, get it. Because even if you've done it and you've seen it, his book is an excellent edition of wisdom that every family should read. So I got to say that, David. Thank you for the kind words. That's very kind of you. you. You're in the business of helping families and, and legacies and when it comes to inheritance. But you say for a family to be happy, there's a whole bunch of reasons why they don't survive going to the next generation. And, and what's that based on? Well, it's first of all, based on my personal experience. Um, second, it's based on a 30-year study of over 3,000 families that went through an inheritance process. And then very intentional education on how to help families avoid the tragedy that our family went through. Right. It's, it's very preventable. So what, what, so what was your story? Well, my story is that my mom and dad were born during the depression. Uh, they were married at the age of 18 and 19, had four children in nine years. And based on their tax returns, they were making $3,000 a year with four children mm. in 1959. Wow. <laughs> and they managed to um, put together a $10 million estate before they passed away. And dad had used all of the traditional estate planning techniques to transfer his wealth. And he always wanted to build an empire. Uh, Unfortunately, he didn't have access to what I do with families. And within, you know, less than two decades, most of my parents' wealth is gone. Our family is not a family anymore. We have one branch that's completely cut themselves off from the rest of the family. Uh, It's just such a tragedy that despite the best planning that he had access to and his wishes, um, they're not going to happen the way he wanted it to. So so what what do you see were the problems that your family had that brought them to where you are today, where it's, it's fractured and not together? Well, interestingly enough, what happened to us is not uncommon. It happens about 70% of the time. So we're not alone. And it's basically, we didn't have a family mission to keep us together. We didn't have a bigger purpose than our family. And that's really one of the major differences of families who stay a family and families who, you know, are at risk of being torn apart. 
the families that stay together have a bigger purpose than just their family. The second piece of it is, is that despite my dad trying to prepare me, I just didn't get it. And I can give you two examples. He had spent a lifetime doing his best to avoid taxes, but made decisions in his estate planning process that allowed him to keep control. And he knowingly set up a tax event after he passed away. And so he tried to prepare me. He was like, I was one of the, I was co-executor. And he said, you know, I'm leaving you a big tax burden. And I remember him telling me that and thinking, what's your money? You can do with it what you want to. You know, if you want to live your whole life avoiding taxes, and then for you, the price of control is leaving us a tax burden, that's your right. But what I failed to consider is that it was my responsibility or my co-responsibility to make sure a $1.8 million check did not bounce nine months after my mother passed away. Wow, that's... That, that, that can have a, 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 an, a, an effect on a family if, if you're not getting along. And, and is you being a co-executor, was, were, were you in step in the same mindset uh, with your brother who was the other co-executor? Unfortunately not. And so the second piece that my dad tried to prepare me for, well, there was three older brothers and, and then I'm the baby. One of my brothers, and my, well, two of actually two of my brothers and my father got sideways. And so my father changed his will, took them out of the will, but because my mother was a Alzheimer's patient, she could not change her will. So the two half ousted brothers inherited underneath my mom, but the, they did not in, inherit underneath my father. And so you can see that's a dynamic yeah. issue in itself. Right. And then one of the brothers that my dad, you know, cut out of his will, he made me the trustee of him and his children on my mom's side and made my co-executor the trustee of the other brother and his children. Mm-hmm. So the two executors were not only taxed with you know, executing the estate, but then ongoing roles were to be the, the trustees of our two brothers who would inherit underneath my mom. And, and then the, the piece of that that you know, gets more interesting, dad passed before mom and as an Alzheimer's patient, you, never, you don't know how long mom could have lasted. In our case, she only lasted eight months. So this, it was one, um, one emotional event after the other, you know, dad passed, we started the estate, taking care of our mother, making decisions about her health, health, watching her decline, trying to make decisions about how, you know, what's best for her, then she passes. And then now we suddenly have to turn in this, this, report to the government that we hope they accept. It took them about two and a half years to decide if our 1.8 million was enough. And, and then we're thrust into this role of trustees ongoing. So there's a lot of family dynamics in there. The dad tried to prepare me because he said, good luck with your brother. I've had a lifetime of not being, you know, successful. And he was one of my favorite brothers. We always got along. My before my dad passed away, it was like, oh, dad, you're wrong. You don't know him. You know, everything's going to be fine. It was not. And unfortunately, that brother is the one that has cut himself off. Uh, and has no matter what I could know, what no matter how many attempts I made to repair the relationship, as I write in the curse of inheritance, once that monster is unleashed, 
it's very difficult to put a family back together again. Yeah, let's let's talk a little about what you call the curse of inher- inheritance. How did you come up with that, and what is it? What does it mean? Well, I I write from my personal experiences, and for me, uh, going through this journey was a spiritual journey. Uh, you know, it's, we are spiritual beings in human form living in a physical world. And so the curse of inheritance represented the unleashing of the grief. And, you know, it, it was, it was unleashing the emotional turmoil, but it, it is born in the environment that's created through the loss and grief. And, and so when it's actually the second book I wrote and when my editor got the manuscript, he's like, whoa, we have got to make this a little bit lighter. Why don't we have some cartoons drawn? And sure. so we, we actually had a cartoon of the Curse of Inheritance created by a New York Times, you know, um, cartoonist. She's been in the New York Times several times. And I think she captured the curse uh, magnificently in her illustration of what it would look like. It, it eats money. It, you know, destroys relationships. It's, it's just a, an energy. And I think what also, when I first, uh, when I was researching my book and I, I came across it, I think it was also the part where you talk about it, it provides money f- to people that are, um, who feel entitled to unearned wealth. And they forget to see each other as human beings. And that struck home with me, uh, not only with my own uh, journey and what I went through. Every time I'd have that conversation or tell people about it, I'd hear about more people. I didn't know there was a name for it, but what you, how you uh, call it, the curse of inheritance, That I think that's the proper name for it. Because there's so many moving parts to it, and it's all based on grief and loss. Mm-hmm. And then everything else the money and everything else comes in there. And uh, then we've got a whole, it becomes a disaster. Families become traumatized. There's chaos. There's, there's, there's tons of things happening. So for the other reason that uh, maybe we go back a little bit based on the curse of inheritance, is that probably the main reason why uh, inheritances don't uh, break up family, why they, why it breaks up families? I believe so because and this is supported by research, David, mm-hmm. um, you know, in that study done of 3000 families, the majority of families broke up because of lack of communication and unprepared heirs. And then a portion of them was this mission statement. And so if you, I, I feel like, and, and I appreciate you bringing up the, the entitlement and forget to see each other as human beings, because in that description, you can reverse engineer the solution. You can create a system within your family where your children don't grow up in tight, right? You can um, work on communication and trust. And you, you mentioned in my introduction that families that played, I believe families that play together, stay together. And so you're, you know, and, and I actually, we have a process in our family. We're eight years into our legacy plan for our family. And so my husband and I, we fund an annual trip for our entire family to spend a week together And we've got a set time so that if they get a new job or as the grandkids get older and they want to start, you know, that instead of them coming as their parents' child, someday we hope to live long enough, they'll be their own adult with their own children. And because we have this set week, everybody knows when legacy week is. 
Right. And so whether you get a new job, or you're planning a trip, you're like, nope, that's our legacy week. That's the week we're going to come. So, and so that's one of the greatest ways to build that communication and trust. And, and we use that time to have some discussions typically um, about how to make the family a family, how, make, how to make sure that they stay a family. Do you think, because I also know in, in your book that you talk about that people are afraid to talk about death. And as much as families might get together, those deeper conversations, they don't seem to come up. So you might be having your legacy uh, week, but families still might be getting together, but it could be all superficial. Hey, let's, uh, you know, we're going to have games and the kids get together and, and that's it. But it seems like what you're doing and what your family's doing it just is taking it one step further to make sure that the family stays together. Because when there is a family breakdown, maybe it's because of death and there is going to be an estate, these people, and here it comes again, the curse of inheritance comes out and you're looking at these people who you went on vacation with or had Christmas dinners with. And you're saying, who is this person that who's now taking me to court or who's fighting over that lamp or who feels entitled? What, 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 why do you feel that people are afraid to talk about death? Well, I think there's an innate human. I think our brain is designed to keep us safe, number one. And so death is scary. So our brain is going to go, nope, not going to talk about it. The other piece of it is culturally. And I actually did a research project one time of how we remove death from our society. And, and, you know, in the olden days, people died at home. They laid the body out in the parlor. They built their own box. They dug a grave and they buried them. Well, with the advent of the funeral services, hospitals, death became, you know, up to the 1960s, um, it became a medical failure. We saw death as a medical failure. And now with more of the humanities movement and hospice and, and we, we've come back to, you know, death is a natural process. And so we're, we're relearning that death is, is natural. And, and, and to your point about the meetings and intentionality, you know, for us talking about death is a way of life. Um, I, I can tell you a conversation that I had with my granddaughter uh, this past week, I told her, I said, you know, after they, my grandkids call me Elmo. And I said, after Elmo's gone, if you're ever visited by a white butterfly, it's me going to be coming to, you know, support you and let you know that I'm there for you. And uh, her mother and father in the middle of putting together their will and their, their emergency plan that we, we help families create. And I am their backup to them, if something were happening to them, I would become the guardian of their children. And so my little eight-year-old granddaughter put two and two together. She said, but Elmo, if you're supposed to die before mom and dad and something happens to mom and dad, how will you be here to take care of us if they're gone? <laughs> and so this little eight-year-old girl is quite comfortable asking questions. And her parents have conversations like, if something were happening to us, your Elmo and Dusty would be the ones and you would live with them. And and in her mind, because of the conversations we've had, she understands that I should go before her mother goes, right? Right. And, and I take them by the cemetery. They were born after my parents passed away. So I take them and this is your grandparents. This is your great grandparents. We were fortunate to, to be near a cemetery that I've got like four or five generations of family buried in the same cemetery. Right. So I'm able to tell the family stories from the cemetery of where these grandkids came from. So, but you're what, what you're explaining of, of how you do it, that seems to be 
very difficult for a lot of people just to even broach the subject, whether you're an executor or you're the head of a, a family and you want to talk about it to the to the family members about the estate. What would you say are some of the solutions people could do to you know move forward to start family planning and, and, and stay away from that curse of inheritance is basically what I'm talking about. Well, there are a lot of resources to help families get through these conversations because to your point, most people are trying to avoid the topic because their brain's saying, no, 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 I, I don't want to talk about this. Um, there's, there's, there's just a lot of research, the conversation project, death over dinner. Um, you know, my goal is to see legacy planning become a, a recognized industry that having outside sources guide you through that conversation. And what I help families, like when they come to me and they're like, well, I want to talk to my mom and dad, but they do not want to have that conversation. Right. Cause I know the older you, you get the, you know, you realize you're closer to it and like, Oh, um, and I would encourage all adult children to have this conversation because their parents' lack of planning could destroy their financial future. I mean, I have one client and he said, well, my dad keeps telling my wife that you know, she's going to be the one to wipe his, you know, rear end when he needs help. And I said, your dad's telling you the truth. That's his plan. And so the cost of unpaid caregiving to productivity is in the billions every year because people don't have the tools. So I would encourage you, um, first of all, with the adult children, do the planning yourself because the number of adults that don't have a will that are younger is extraordinarily higher than older, right? So do the work yourself. That's what, you know, I work with a lot of, you know, 30 to 50 year olds and they're, they're putting all the plans together that they want their parents to do so that when they go to their parents, their parents, like, I don't want to talk about that. They can say, well, I know how hard that is because I did it. And this is about you, not me. It's about honoring what your wishes are. It's making sure that, that what you want gets done. But if we don't have a, if we don't have a conversation about it, then oftentimes we see a fight at the hospital of adult children making life and death decision, guessing what mom and dad would have wanted because nobody had the discussion. Now you've added a layer of what I call unnecessary stress. Yeah. Because if not having the conversations and not empowering people to make it easy for them to help you have your documents organized, have the conversations. So, so let's, let's, okay. Everything you're saying, I, I totally agree with say there's two children and one child says, you know what, mom and dad were doing the planning and I want to talk to you about the planning. And we've got a other sibling who doesn't do anything and they're just going to look at you talking to the parents saying, what is it you're after? What are you, they're going to look at you, you know, sideways and say, well, wh- what is it? Wh- what's your, what's your motives? Are you looking at mom and dad's money? You know, because I, I, as an advisor, I've seen this where people are actually, you've been planning, they base their financial plans based on the, the, unfortunately, the, the passing of their parents. They see that as their retirement plan. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you've got one, you know, sibling that or child that wants to do the right thing, and you've got another one who 
who's looking at you and, and has a suspicious uh, thought about what your, 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 what your motives are, how do you combat that? What, what, is, it, is it up to the parent to say something? Because you, you, it's still difficult conversations. Absolutely. And I was working with a client the other day and they were just very uncomfortable having the conversation. They're like, I don't want to have that conversation. So for them, I suggested that they write a letter in their own handwriting addressed to the person that was going to cause the problem, right? That goes a long way. I've seen a family destroyed over $25,000. Grandma was 83 years old. That's all she had to her name. She left it to her youngest grandson, the only one that was left in college. Her son accused his sister of stealing all the money. And the, the two families have split. They're no longer in the cousins don't even get to see each other over $25,000. There's two things grandma could have done. Grandma could have brought the son and the daughter together and said, look, here's my, here's what I have. And I'm leaving it to, you know, X. And this is why it doesn't mean that I love you any differently. And there's, there's two pieces of irony behind this is if grandma had lived another year, the two children would have had to been putting money in to cover grandma's cost of living. There wouldn't have been any money to fight over. Number two, if grandma couldn't have that conversation to at least have left in a letter to her son, I love you. This isn't about love. This is about helping the last one get over, you know, whatever reasons that she chose to make her decisions, letting people know in your own hand and your own voice, I believe goes a long way because then it would not have been brother accusing sister. Um, it would have been coming from mom. It, it's, it comes back to sense of entitlement. They believe that grandma's money, whatever the amount might be, they're entitled to that. And that's where I see a lot of uh, families break down is that, that uh, the beneficiaries or the heirs, they see that you know, this money, whether it's the parents, grandparents, whatever it might be, they see this as, as like sort of a lottery winning, or it's their one way to get their their financial life in order because this dollar amount is earmarked for them. That That's where I feel, and, and that's why we're having this conversation, is that why legacies never seem to pass on from generation to generation, which is what you talk about in in your book. Well, and so the interesting thing that I've learned and observed is that families that are successful start investing in their family's development while they're alive. So I, 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 I finally come to realize that what legacy planning does is it allows families to connect to their future now. So those entitlement issues come out. I, I will tell you, one of my brothers went to my mom and dad when they were in their early 60s and said, I need my inheritance now. I need it more than you do. And that's that's like the ultimate source of entitlement. Like when I think about I'm 62 years old, I got a lot of living to do. And if one of my children came up to me and said, I need my inheritance now more than you do, I'd be like, I, 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 got, a, I got a long time to go, you know? And so that, that entitlement comes out with legacy planning and the conversations. And so to empower your next generation to go out and make their own, to have their own ambition, their own drive. Um, I know for, you know, in our family, the one brother, he just never, he never managed his money. So perhaps, you know, giving him 
tools to increase his financial literacy. You know, it, it takes more than financial literacy to create wealth. It takes that emo- the emotional side Absolutely. and having a healthy relationship with money. You, and that's what I write about in the curse. Money makes you more of who you are. If you're greedy, when you get more money, you'll be more greedier. If you're generous, when you get more money, you'll be more generous. Uh, inheritances only amplify our current relationship with it, which is why most lottery winners lose their wealth. That's right. That's true. So to wrap this up, if we were going to say three things that a family should do to make sure that they don't break up and that the inheritance will pass from generation to generation, hopefully to another generation, if there was three things that you were going to say to to our listeners, what would you say? Um, The three things that they should do, I would say is bring in an outside consultant or have an outside person help them because we know that children don't want to listen to their parents, (laughs) right? Right. Um, We hosted a, a seminar for our kids. And at the end of it, and we had a financial advisor there and my kids came up to like, this financial advisor said this, this, and this, and this. I was like, it wasn't any different than what we've been telling them their whole right. life, but because it was from an outside expert, they heard it. So bring in an outside, get some help from the outside. That's number one. Number two, be very proactive. Um, my clients, I actually had them wear a little pebble in their shoe and walk around with it. Because if you walk around with a pebble in your shoe, the only thing that you can think about is that pebble in your shoe and you lose sight of all the truly important things in your life. So to be intentionally and proactive and don't wait, right? And then the third piece of it is, is to just understand it's a process, you know, and, and the process starts now and to, to not be afraid of death and just to, to have courage. Because courage is the emotional energy that we need to, to get to where we want to go. So bring in an outside expert, get over having the pebble in your shoe and concentrate on what's truly important and take act, courageous action on it. Those would be the three steps that I would have any family do to, to prevent this in their family. Great. I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. If people want to get in touch with you, how do they find you? Because I'm going to have a link to uh, on the show page, but tell me a little bit more about what you do. Yeah, well, so I um, started the North Texas Family Enterprise Center to provide affordable access for families to, to help them add this into their planning process. So I would just send them to the North Texas Family Enterprise Center. I'm super excited. I got a website that's only five letters. It's ntfec.com for North Texas Family Enterprise Center. So they can go there, um, you know, poke around and there's, there's ways that they can get a hold of me there. Great. Well, Cindy Arledge, Arledge, I'd like to thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I appreciate all of your insights. I appreciate the work that you do um, in terms of helping families stay together. And also, most importantly, like we said at the top, have more fun together. So I want to again, once again, thank you very much and wish you all the best. David, thank you for having me here. As always, it's a pleasure to spend time with you. You've been listening to the Executor Help Podcast. For more details, visit davidedy.com or follow David on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes.